Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to remind listeners of a few things. First is to note that if you're interested in purchasing my or my colleague Rory Mackay's Algonquin Human History books, they can be found in a number of places. These include the Friends of Algonquin Park's online or in-person bookstores, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.com. Now, on the other hand, if you'd like a signed copy, please feel free to drop me a line at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. If you'd rather have an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt or coffee cup or other swag, check out links from my website www.algonquinparkheritage.com or go to redbubble.com and search for my Algonquin Defining Moments virtual storefront. I'd also like to encourage everyone to reach out and support the Wildlife Research Station in their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. I'd also like to announce that two new books have been published in May. The first is a paperback version of my three-part series on Tom Thompson's life, art, mysterious death on Canoe Lake in 1917, and the mythology that has resulted around him since then. It's for those who'd rather read than listen, or would like a new Algonquin something for their cottage bookshelves. Second is my Algonquin Cottage Cookbook, which is a totally new direction for me. Called Early 20th Century Algonquin Cottage Cookery, a whimsical stroll through the recipe box of Jean Bertram Peary. It's part culinary history, Peary family storytelling, and part cookbook. It brings to life what it must have been like working over a hot stove miles from civilization during the first half of the 20th century. Jean Peary, you've met several times, first in my book Algonquin Voices, Selected Stories of Canoe Lake Women, and secondly in Algonquin Defining Moments, Episode 24. There I chatted with Sandy Lewis, Jean's grandson, whose family were one of the original Canoe Lake leaseholders. Sandy spent years transcribing all 500-plus of his grandmother's recipes. I've selected over 300 recipes for you and your extended cottage family and friends to experiment with, as I have. It's great fun, and since most are cake, cookies, tarts, and puddings, I suspect there'll be tons of fans at the cottage. My third book for the season, which should be available in June 2023, is a reformulation of my previous book, Nominegan and Other Smoke Lake Jewels. Renamed The Grand Trunk Hotels, Stories of Three Algonquin Wilderness Getaways, The Highland Inn, Nominegan, and Minnesing, all will be available on Amazon.ca, Amazon.com, and of course, the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores. Once again, if you'd like signed copies, please reach out to me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. So, as you'll recall, the last two episodes focused on the latest and greatest salamander research that Patrick Muldowan had been engaged with during the last few decades. Of great interest to me has been his contribution in better understanding the degree to which salamanders and the state of their ecosystem are potential canaries in the coal mine in regards to the impacts of climate change on the Algonquin Park habitat. Now some of this we're seeing in other species as well. As shared in episode 34, which was my chat with Dan Strickland and Ryan Norris on Canada Jays, it is the inability of their food caches to stay frozen far enough into the late winter and early spring 
that is driving the Jays away from their traditional Highway 60 territories and forcing them to seek new homes so as to strengthen their reproductive success. I can remember a time not too long ago when barn swallows were a common feature of the Smoke Creek Bridge and other Highway 60 locations such as the East and West Gates, the Opianco Store, and the Harkness Fish Lab. Now, according to a 2012 Raven article, volume 53, number 3, at that time there were fewer than 25 pairs of nesting barn swallows on the Highway 60 corridor. Today they have basically vanished, I suspect. According to Ron Tozer, in his amazing 2012 book, Birds of Algonquin Park, it isn't just barn swallows that have been affected. So have swifts, nighthawks, whippoorwills, and even some flycatchers. Now what's common to all of these birds is that they all forage for insects in the air. Ron suggests that some of the contributing factors to their decline include changes in the number of insects, the timing of their occurrence, and more severe weather events that are reducing the availability of insect prey during the critical nesting periods. In addition is habitat loss and pesticide use in their South American wintering areas. Alas, it isn't just in Algonquin Park, where there are fewer barn swallows, there has been an overall decline across their entire North American range. My first exposure and awareness to changing Algonquin Park habitat occurred in the summer of 1970. I'm still not sure why this particular summer and event is so fixed in my memory, but it is. I was a 16er at Camp Wapamil, and one mid-August day a few of us decided to paddle to the Portage store for an ice cream cone. It was a glorious hot summer day, big puffy clouds in the sky, and not a breath of wind. I was sterning the canoe and noticed for the first time that there seemed to be all kinds of stuff suspended in the water as we paddled down the east shore, past Popcorn Island. Now, as most of you know, I grew up on Canoe Lake, and as kids we'd often call Popcorn Island Peapot Island because in late summer the urine smell of pea became overwhelming. For those unaware, this almost treeless island was a common bathroom break spot for travelers up and down the lake until Ontario Parks put a jewel box on the shores at the lighthouse a few years ago. What was actually in the water I can't say, but what I can say is that I noticed at a time when I wasn't supposed to notice and carried that sentiment with me for a very long time. It wasn't until decades later when researching my book, Treasuring Algonquin, Settlement Stories of a Hundred Years of Leaseholding, that I realized that that time period was of major significance and a turning point in attitudes about water pollution. Here's what happened, and I quote from my book. In Superintendent George Phillips' 1954 annual report, he declared that the waters at Cache Lake was polluted and unfit for drinking. In 1956, all cottagers and campers in the park were advised to boil or chlorinate all drinking water, whether tested for purity or not. The following spring, Chuck Gray had the water in front of his canoe lake cabin tested by the Department of Health. The test results showed bacterial counts that made it still unfit for drinking, without chlorinating or boiling. No one knew why. There was some speculation that it was a result of the overwhelming of the beaver dams holding back March Hare Lake, east of the Camp Amic waterfront. 
This was as a result of Hurricane Audrey, which struck the U.S. Gulf Coast on June 27, 1957, and landed in Canada on Canada Day. A huge wall of likely Giardia-filled water had descended down the rocky gorge which led to Hickey Creek and flooded Canoe Lake. The water rose a good three feet, covering the Portage store and most cottagers' docks. Check out my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, if you'd like to see some images of the underwater Portage store docks. For all of us at the cottage, from that point on, boiling water and adding chlorinated tablets became the normal routine. Over a decade later, in 1968, members of the various lake leaseholder associations came together to establish the Algonquin Park Residents Association in response to the newly announced Ontario Park classification system and the issuing of a first attempt at an Algonquin Park master plan. APRA's first initiative, led by President Don McMurchie of Canoe Lake, was to sponsor a wide-ranging study of the park issues from the leaseholder perspective. In December 1969, representing over a thousand person years of association with and knowledge of the park, APRA submitted probably one of the defining documents of its history. Running to over 40 pages, the study, called Algonquin Park, a park for people, included not only a detailed analysis of the park's existing features and issues and their relationships to one another, but also detailed criteria against which any park planning needed to be measured and a specific set of goals for park utilization. One of the issues discussed that was really apparent, especially for those on Lake of Two Rivers, was the issue of water quality. That summer, it was estimated that over 2,000 visitors had camped at the Lake of Two Rivers campground, a site that could support half that number. Mary McCauley, daughter of the Honorable Leopold McCauley, and a Lake of Two Rivers leaseholder had for years been sending samples of the lake water on Lake of Two Rivers for testing several times each summer. In July of 1968, the results from her water sample from near her cottage came back unsatisfactory. She took her concerns to park officials and was told that cottagers were causing the high degree of pollution due to their inadequate sewage disposal methods. Surprised at this response, she took her concerns to the Algonquin Park Residents Association. Recalled by Rory Mackay's father, Dr. Mackay, the then vice president of APRA, noted in a letter that we immediately decided to do a survey. Consequently, in August 1968, water testing kits were obtained from the Public Health Laboratory Service of the Ontario Department of Health. Following their techniques and using sterile precautions, water from several locations in each of the 16 inhabited lakes along the Highway 60 corridor were tested and reports were received on each sample. This report was discussed with park officials in early 1969 and presented in detail at the APRA Summer Annual Meeting and to the Minister of Lands and Forests in December. Of the 62 samples drawn from the 16 lakes and rivers, 48% showed that fecal coliform organisms were present, and an additional 30% had other coliform organisms present to such a degree that additional testing was recommended before the water could be considered safe for drinking. Only 22% of all of the samples drawn had no fecal or other coliform organisms present. Needless to say, the majority of the heavily polluted areas were the densely populated areas around campgrounds, children's camps, and the portage store. 
The worst situation was at Pod Lake and Lake of Two Rivers. In August 1969, the Department of Lands and Forests began to initiate regular water testings, posted signs closing all of Lake of Two River beaches, and this directive remained in place for the rest of the season. Though the Clean Water Act had been around in the USA since 1948 to, quote, regulate discharges of pollutants into the waters of the United States and quality standards for surface waters, unquote, it wasn't until 1972 that, quote, growing public awareness and concern for controlling water pollution led to sweeping amendments to the Act in 1972, unquote. These new regulations set the standard for an entire generation, and until recently were considered inviolate and set in stone. Now, in Algonquin Park, change did happen. On Canoe Lake, holding ponds were built above and behind the Portage store in Camp Amic, and I presume at most other children's camps, and all wastes were pumped there. A giant pipeline was installed to pump waste from Camp Wapameo to the Amic holding pond, and everyone made sure that outhouses were all set back some distance from the shoreline. Consciousness was raised about the impacts of using soaps and detergents, and most leaseholders shifted to biodegradables or didn't wash in the lake anymore at all. At Lake of Two Rivers, outhouses were removed and replaced with sewage holding tanks, and a sewage collection service was engaged. Washing and laundry facilities were established, and campground capacity was reduced. Though they couldn't vote, I suspect that most waterfowl and fish were very enthusiastic about this turnaround in attitudes about how their habitat was being treated by humans though I suspect it took years for the water to actually recover. One other interesting comment from Dr. Mackay, which kind of echoes how the Thabergias were treated by government officials when they commuted their wolf research findings at the time, was his notation that, I quote, I was later criticized by some departmental personnel for doing the survey. I was told not to use the Public Health Laboratory Service of the Province of Ontario for any further survey. The laboratory director was informed of this reprimand also. Now this shooting of the messenger sentiment is one that still leaves me confounded. Though the belief that leaseholders were causing the water pollution in Algonquin Lakes was one that still persisted well into the 21st century and wasn't put to rest once and for all until the leaseholders initiated again through APRA a septic inspection effort that proved once and for all that leaseholder cabins, except in a few rare cases, were having little or no effect on lake water quality. Now I realize that the recounting of these stories have virtually nothing particularly to do with climate change, but they do illustrate the beginnings of an awareness shift, both for me personally, but also for many others, as to the visible impact that humans were and are having on Algonquin's ecosystems whether caused by climate change or other more direct human impacts. Few today realize that prior to the late 1970s, cans and bottles weren't banned. No one packed out their trash from interior campsites, and nor did jewel boxes exist on popular lakes. Sites would have garbage dumps that of course attracted bears, and the sides of trails would be littered with toilet paper and other refuse of human occupation. This awareness of the connection between human activity and wildlife habitat quality became real in a way that it hadn't before. The problem with recent climate change dialogue, in my view, is that we've lost the connection that it is humans that are causing the climate to change, not some external force that is being imposed on humanity. Now I realize 
that there are plenty of deniers out there who like to think that the climate changes happening these days are part of broad cyclical events not related to carbon creation. In case you're wondering, I am not a supporter of this argument. Now what I'd like to do in the rest of this episode is focus on known effects on wildlife habitat that climate change is having in Algonquin Park. Much of the insight comes from a series of reports that park and wildlife research station researchers have uncovered, links to which are in the show notes on algonquinparkheritage.podbean.com. The three main ones include IR number 10, which is Aquatic Ecology, History and Diversity of Algonquin Park, IR number 14, Climate Warming Projections for Algonquin Provincial Park, and report number IR22, the Smoke Canoe Tea Lakes Fish Movement Project in Algonquin Provincial Park. And lastly, research report CCRR number 6, Climate Change in Ontario's Provincial Parks Towards an Adaptation Strategy. One of the most visible signs of climate change is the fact that Algonquin Park is getting warmer and is expected to get even warmer over the next half century or more. In 2017, Mark Ridgway from the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research, along with Darren Smith and Trevor Medell from the Aquatic Research and Monitoring Section from the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, led the writing of a report called Aquatic Ecology, History and Diversity of Algonquin Park. In it, they shared that the Algonquin Park landscape is expected to warm by anything from 0.7 degrees C to 3.4 degrees C in the decade of 2020 relative to the average temperature in the 1961 to 1990 period, and may increase as much as 7.1 degrees C by the mid-21st century and 10.6 degrees C by the decade of the 2080s. Now I'd like to stop for a moment and let that sink in. In other words, it's already as much as a degree warmer than it used to be. And by mid-century could warm another 2 to 3 degrees, and by the 2080s another 4 to 6 degrees. Those are huge numbers. In 2018, the work was updated and a report called Climate Warming Projections for Algonquin Park IR number 14, was produced. Before I share their results, I thought it would be useful to explain in layman terms how these kinds of projections are developed, which has all been new to me. For most of a century, temperature has been recorded at three weather stations in Halliburton, Madawaska, and North Bay, Ontario. These locations provide a time series on changes in average annual air temperature in the northwest, southwest, and southeast areas of the park, respectively. At the Halliburton Station, measurements have been taken from 1888 to 2016. At the Madawaska Station, from 1915 to 2016. And at the North Bay Station, from 1925 to 2014. What this means is that over the decades of observation, the trend line demonstrates an increase in average annual air temperature of approximately 1 degree C at the three sites, which is consistent with NASA's derived global patterns from 2018. Second, at the University of Victoria, there's a team called the Pacific Climate Impacts Consortium that builds climate models. Eight of the 12 models that they've developed 
were used by park officials and seem to be the ones most relevant for Ontario and Canada. The way scientists localize broad climate assessments is quite interesting. Apparently what they do is take these atmospheric circulation models and downscale them to a 10 by 10 kilometer grid. Within each grid they can do detailed climate projections based on the specific landscape composition within it. They can then talk about the impacts on a specific lake or area based on the results associated with the closest grid node. In Algonquin Park there are 155 grid cells and 118 around the perimeter of the park. For Ridgeway et al.'s assessment, two assumptions were made. The first is that there's continued increase in the upward trajectory of greenhouse gases, i.e. carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere, till the end of this century. The second assumption is that humanity will successfully reduce greenhouse gases by mid-century such that carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere will peak in 2040 and decline after that. Unfortunately, all of the models suggest that average annual air temperature in Algonquin Park will continue to increase by about 6 to 7 degrees C until about mid-century. If greenhouse gases aren't reduced, the average annual air temperature will continue to increase such that by 2100 it could be on average 9 to 10 degrees C warmer. A little higher, of course, on lakes that are at lower elevation, such as Grand Lake. Versus the central area of Algonquin Park, which represents higher elevation, which will remain relatively cooler than the surrounding landscape. With current Algonquin Park temperatures averaging 4 to 5 degrees C, that's a significant change and will have all kinds of impacts. Now to put all this in context, as the authors reported, the best case scenario reduced greenhouse gases by mid-century will result in average air temperatures in the park equivalent to today's Peterborough, Ontario. Continued increases in greenhouse gases will result in average air temperature in the park equivalent to Leamington, Ontario. In other words, and I say with somewhat tongue-in-cheek, by 2100 we'll be able to grow plenty of tomatoes in Algonquin Park. A second data set used to evaluate the impact of climate change in Algonquin is the fact that since the 1950s, though variable each year, the date that the ice goes out has been advancing, in other words gotten earlier, by about 1.7 days per decade. This translates into about a nine day earlier ice out date since the start of the observation record. But it isn't just ice out that is noticeable. The ice is also forming on the lakes later in the fall and early winter, which means that on average there is open water on most lakes for at least one to two weeks more each season than there has been in the past. By definition, this means that snow is also disappearing earlier and arriving later. The most visible impact is on bird migration. According to work done by Ron Tozer and Douglas Tozer, Climate warming since 1986 has caused earlier spring arrivals for a number of well-known Algonquin birds. In specific, their comprehensive research has shown that 79% of Algonquin birds are arriving earlier in the spring and 35% are leaving later in the autumn. Birds such as loons, white-throat sparrows, and yellow-rumped warblers, for example, 
who didn't used to arrive until around April 25th, now arrive on average a week earlier. The same can be said with great blue herons, common grackles, and red-winged blackbirds that used to arrive in late March or early April are now arriving, as in the case of the red-winged blackbird, as early as March 15th. Of course, as discussed with Patrick Muldowan with the salamander research, changes in the microbial de decomposition in soils will affect the habitat of plants and their interactions with those microbes, but in exactly what ways isn't really known. It will also impact forest composition. Hardwood forests around Lake Ontario are seeing a lot more beech and much less beech-maple-birch combinations. Balsam like cooler temperatures. So as Algonquin loses its place as a cool haven in a warm Ontario, the number of balsam may be affected. Even our noble white pine might be affected. As Michael Runtz wrote in his latest 2021 edition of his popular Explorer's Guide to Algonquin Park, the good news is that, quote, white pine can photosynthesize longer in autumn due to warmer, later fall seasonal temperatures, unquote. The bad news is that, quote, an increase in carbon dioxide levels in the air are weakening the tree's ability to become cold hardy and survive winter below freezing temperatures, unquote. I think it's time for a musical interlude. This piano composition is from Sarah Spring and is called Under Cold Water. addition to soils and forest composition impacts, a third area being impacted is what's happening to lake water composition. Now there is this really cool field called paleolimnology, 
It's the study of lake bottom sediments to provide profiles of climate, environmental, biological, and chemical conditions that get recorded there in the muds. Scientists assess this by taking a core sample of the sediment at the deepest part of a lake. They then slice the sample into smaller core samples and figure out what's in them, and based on their composition can estimate how old the sample is. What they look for are things like pollen, plant macrofossils, charcoal, algae, diatoms, bacteria, chrysophytes, and the remains of various invertebrates. By comparing then to now, researchers can see the differences or changes since the 1850s, whether through climate change or something else. As I've shared in a previous episode, in the 1980s, researchers worried most about acidification, but today there's much more focus on pH recovery, calcium declines, and specific climate change stressors. From 1990 to 2010, the water chemistry of over 50 Algonquin lakes was analyzed. And what was found was that pH and dissolved organic carbon, known as DOC, have increased over time, and total phosphorus and calcium have decreased. Now, some of this likely has been the result of atmosphere acidification, what we used to call acid rain in the 1970s. But some think it might also be due to the impacts of logging. It seems that over time, logging depletes nearby soils of calcium, and eventually this impacts the nearby lake's water chemistry. One of the most visible impacts of these changes to water chemistry is the creation of what are called cyanobacterial blooms. A large one was first discovered on Dixon Lake in the fall of 2014 and again in the spring of 2015. According to a report published in 2019 in the Journal of Paleolimnology, E.J. Favot, K.M. Rudlin, A.M. DeSalas, R. Ingram, A.M. Patterson, and J.P. Small studied the lake's sedimentary diatoms, chironomids, cladocerans, and spectrally inferred chlorophyll. Their work, quote, revealed a decline in oxygen concentrations over the last two decades coincident with the highest levels of sedimentary chlorophyll and cyobacterial aconets in the sediment record. As they went on to note, it is plausible that late ice out and a quick onset to stratification in 2014 may have resulted in incomplete spring water mixing, early onset of hypolimnetic anoxia, and increased internal nutrient loading, this all occurring during a period when climate conditions were particularly ideal for cyanobacterial proliferation. All of these may have fueled the unprecedented algae blooms in this remote lake." Unquote. Now, of course, algae blooms are not so great, but the biggest deal is what are the impacts of warmer temperatures going to be on the lakes and, of course, the fish that inhabit those lakes. According to Ontario Park Science and Research Information Report IR22 and research by Small et al. in 2016 and 19 and Wowei et al. in 2020, five core things are going to happen to Algonquin Lakes. First, of course, is the fact that the summer surface water temperatures will increase. 
Not surprisingly, smaller lakes will experience higher temperatures and faster water temperature gains than larger ones. Secondly, as previously mentioned, lakes will be ice covered for shorter periods of time, with later ice in and earlier ice out dates than previous decades, which again will impact smaller lakes more than larger ones. Thirdly, all lakes will likely to be less windy, which is good news for canoeists paddling big lakes, but means there will be less mixing of surface waters in the spring and summer. Fourthly is the expectations of a longer summer thermocline, i.e. a sharper delineation between warm and cold water layers that will last longer into the fall, a gain which will have a greater impact on smaller lakes than larger ones. Lastly is the expected reduction in dissolved oxygen, especially in deep, colder waters, which will likely reduce the amount of available cold water habitat. And this, of course, will be much worse in smaller lakes. As noted in the report, to no one's surprise, water temperature affects fish at several levels. It, of course, directly influences metabolism and physiological performance and fish habitat volume, defined by species-specific preferred temperatures, but it also affects the timing of seasonally important events, such as spawning. Water temperature can also affect fish indirectly. The amount of prey and its timing, like insects for birds, are impacted as is the ability to disperse and occupy new watersheds, and the size and quantity of produced cohorts or year classes that are also impacted. Now Algonquin Park is home to a lot of cold water fish, such as lake trout, brook trout, cisco, and whitefish, whom I am thinking will not like living in warmer waters. On the other hand are bass, as mentioned in previous episodes on Harkness Labs research, episodes number 32 and 33, the production of smallmouth bass cohorts is driven by the warmth of their first summer and subsequently by the severity of their first winter prior to age one. According to Science and Research Information Report IR10, the spawning period of smallmouth bass is also driven by spring warming conditions with warmer earlier springs resulting in earlier spawning seasons. As a result, cohort production rises under warm conditions that are favorable for growth and survival of young bass and declines under colder conditions. Because of this link, smallmouth bass are responding positively to climate warming and will continue to do so. The implications for this trend are significant. As warmer conditions occur over larger areas of Ontario's landscape, the climate patterns that limited smallmouth bass distribution in the past will shift northward, leading to an expanding range for the species. Numerous studies point to the negative effects of smallmouth bass on biodiversity and food webs of native fish species, including the direct effects on lake trout and their supporting food web. Expansion of smallmouth bass or other species of bass currently found in a limited number of watersheds will have negative consequences on native fish and their food webs. While other predatory species of fish will have similar top-down effects on aquatic food webs, research on their specific effects is not as complete as with the effects associated with bass introductions. The same effects are expected, including spread through watersheds from points of introduction, sharp reductions in native species of fish, and alterations of natural predator-prey relationships. For Algonquin Park, 
Climate warming projections strongly indicate increased production of smallmouth bass year classes. For dedicated lake trout anglers, this is bad news indeed. Also according to Science and Research Information Report IR10, in specific for lake trout, warmer springs and summers will produce an earlier onset of thermal stratification in lakes through the formation of the summer thermocline. For those unaware, the thermocline is the boundary between warm surface waters and deeper cold waters of lakes. Research has shown that the depth of this boundary between warm and cold waters varies based on both the summer temperature and the extent of the mixing of warm and cold water in the water column due to summer winds. Because the boundary reduces or eliminates oxygen exchange between the two lake layers, once the lake thermocline is established, oxygen concentrations below the boundary effectively represent all the oxygen that's available to cold water fish living in deeper areas of lakes. The oxygen in the deeper parts of any lake is not replenished until the lake cools in the fall, when the surface and deep waters start to mix and create a common colder temperature. Things get worse if the length of the time a thermocline remains in a lake is longer because the entire food web in the deeper areas of the lake is dependent on the amount of oxygen that is locked in, and of course will be worse in smaller lakes than larger ones. Lake trout like cold water and grow the largest in lakes with a maximum temperature range of 10 to 12 degrees C. Typically, they begin feeding in shallow areas of lakes after ice out, and as the thermocline develops during spring and summer, they migrate to the colder parts of any particular lake. Now this is why anyone who knows anything about fishing knows that there's no way that Tom Thompson would be fishing for lake trout near Joe Lake Dam on the day he died. Research at Lake Opiango has demonstrated that lake trout growth is reduced in years with early stratification because it reduces foraging opportunities for fish after ice out and before the summer begins. Things will be worse if dry weather conditions prevail or if there are negative changes in natural organic inputs to lakes and increased fishing harvest levels. This is why catch and release is so important in Algonquin Park. Another type of trout that will be greatly affected by warmer waters is the brook or speckled trout, who love streams and rivers. Though detailed research hasn't yet been done in Algonquin Park, some studies have taken place in Wisconsin, which has similar latitudes to Algonquin Park and has a similar fish fauna composition. Studies in Wisconsin show that there will be extensive loss of stream habitats. How this loss occurs amongst different watersheds will depend on the relative contribution of groundwater to flow at particular sites. As noted in Science and Research Information Report IR10, quote, since surfical groundwater temperature approximates average annual air temperature, then climate warming projections for Algonquin Park for mid-century point to a fundamental change for brook trout in the Algonquin Park landscape. In Wisconsin streams, other species such as channel catfish and pumpkin seed sunfish are also expected to increase their stream occupancy under climate warming projections. Now whether this pattern occurs in Algonquin Park will be a function of access by these species to watersheds. Other impacts to lakes and fish mentioned in the climate projections report 
due to habitat warming include changes in the watershed environment due to increased evaporation during a longer warm season and increased precipitation. Both may lead to increased water flow in watersheds, perhaps even seasonally. There may also be earlier migrations or movements to spawning areas for many species using rivers. This will result in earlier spawning dates for spring spawning species. Also, it's unclear whether this might be a good thing or a bad thing. There might also be changes in species biology, such as the potential for increased or decreases in the number and type of fish parasites based on species response to temperature increase and other physiological limits due to increasing water temperatures or declines in the late season dissolved oxygen, as discussed previously. So where do we go from here? In Algonquin Park, one of the exciting new research projects that was started in 2021 and is expected to continue on to 2026. Called the SCT Project, it's a collaborative five-year research project being conducted on Smoke, Canoe, and Tea Lakes. One of its objectives is to better understand how fish will respond to climate change. These three lakes were chosen because they represent a size gradient that will ensure a range of timing in heating, cooling, and ice formation and are easily accessible. Because the three lakes are connected, they all share the same fish species. This study is expected to deepen our understanding of how fish movements and habitat occupancy changes with lake heating and cooling and what can be expected with further climate change. It'll also help researchers and fishery policymakers and managers better understand how lake food webs will change in the coming decades. The way it's going to work is that networks of acoustic receivers are being installed in each lake in sufficient numbers to capture fish movement in three dimensions. This amounts to about 149 receivers altogether that will be spaced on average about 275 meters apart. Working sort of like an underwater GPS system, each receiver has its own tag beeping at a slow and steady rate, such that neighboring receivers can detect it. The fish will be surgically implanted with acoustic tags that transmit every four to six minutes, individual identifications as well as their depth. As individual fish move among receivers in each network, their identity and depth are recorded by the closest receivers, and the groups of receivers Detecting an individual fish are used to triangulate position relative to the lake surface. In this way, fish position is determined every four to six minutes through all seasons of a year and will be tracked for several years. As noted in Information Report IR22 that reviews the details of this project, quote, some of the receivers will have companion temperature recorders so that thermal conditions of each lake can be estimated at time scales that are matched to fish movements. Water temperature data collected across the surface of the lakes will be used to generate computer models of water movement that in turn may help explain fish movement and seasonal habitat use. Linking fish movement to water movement is important because it helps understand these lakes as ecosystems in motion. Field crews will also be conducting limnological surveys and tracking biological, chemical, and physical features in each lake in each season. As mentioned previously, the project began in 2021 with installation of the Smoke Lake Network, and in 2022, the networks were installed in Canoe and Tea Lakes. 
The key collaborators and partners for the project include Bailey McMeans from the Department of Biology at the University of Toronto, Mark Ridgway from the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research, Matthew Wells from the Department of Physical and Environmental Sciences at the University of Toronto, Kevin McCann from the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Guelph, Aaron Fisk from the Great Lakes Institute for Environmental Research from the University of Windsor, and Paul Blanchfield and Tyler Tunney from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. All of the acoustic technology is being provided by InnovaSea from Bedford, Nova Scotia. In summary, as noted in a 2007 Ontario Parks report on climate change, it's important to move towards an adaptation strategy. This adaptation strategy needs to focus on three themes that seem to be just as true today as they were then. First is that we all need to gather as much information as we can about climate change and use that knowledge to make informed decisions about to how to manage for that climate change. Secondly, we need to try to mitigate the impacts of climate change through understanding both natural and cultural heritage values and make sure that both are used as part of the decision-making process. Governments can't do it alone, so as much as possible partnerships need to be formed so as to marshal coordinated responses, including the establishment of on-site management programs that can plan ecologically, manage carbon sinks, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and develop tools and techniques that help mitigate the impacts of rapid climate change. Thirdly, all need to be thinking and planning strategically to prepare for natural disasters. We need to develop and implement the right policy and legislative adaptation strategies so that we can combat the impacts of climate change in an appropriate way. And lastly but not leastly, we need to make sure that all Ontarians understand global warming, climate change, and the known and potential impacts in order to effectively and consistently participate in management programs and decision-making processes. I hope you found this investigation into climate change in Algonquin Park of interest. I am, of course, just scratching the surface, but hopefully have provided you with lots to think about. All of the reports that I have mentioned can be found on the www.harkness.ca website, which is the website for the Harkness Laboratory for Fisheries Research. In a future episode, I'm hoping that I can convince Mark Ridgway to join me and provide some updates both on the SCT project and other ongoing Algonquin climate change assessments. Until next time.